Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson. And joining us once again is film critic Odie Henderson. Hello, Odie. Hello. On last week's show, we talked about Invitation of Life, Douglas Sirk's 1959 classic about two mothers, two daughters, and the ways racial attitudes influence their lives. This week, we're bringing in Rebecca Hall's Passing, an adaptation of Nella Larson's 1929 novel starring Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson. Passing opens with Irene, played by Thompson, a philanthropist and the wife of a prominent Harlem doctor, stepping into a world normally closed to her by letting her light skin allow her access to an upscale Manhattan tea room. Once there, she stumbles across a childhood friend who's apparently made this world her own. Claire, played by Nega, is visiting from Chicago, where she's married John, played by Alexander Skarsgård, a vocally racist businessman who believes her to be white. When Claire introduces Irene to her husband, who assumes she's white as well, it is, to say the least, an awkward situation. When Claire begins visiting Irene and insinuating herself into the life Irene has made with her husband Brian, played by Andre Holland, it becomes more awkward still. There's a lot going on in passing, some of it on the surface and some of it subtext. I don't think I can improve on the observations Hall made. Uh, Hall first encountered the novel shortly after learning that her grandfather was a black man who passed for white. And speaking to the Washington Post, she said, quote, Whatever you think the film's about is a thing you will have to grapple with. I love the idea that some people have an absolute belief that the movie is about marital disorders and someone else who has an absolute belief that it's about adultery or how to raise your children or repressed homosexuality or internalized self-hatred. But when you get one person who absolutely believes one thing and another person who absolutely believes another, and then they get into a conversation, that creates another gray area where they have to meet each other. We'll discuss what we think it's about after the break. So you haven't ever thought to? What? Have you ever thought of passing? No, why should I? I have everything I've ever wanted. This is my husband, John Bellew. Does he? No. Do you dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellew? No, 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 not at all. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> extraordinarily beautiful. I suppose. Your life is perfect. Have you ever thought of what you'd do if John found out? I'd do what I want more than anything right now. I'd come up here to live with you. You think they'd be satisfied being quiet? Who's satisfied being anything? Passing for something or other? Aren't we? I just have to key off that last thing. What is this movie about, everyone? 
Now, are we doing persona again and i missed it <laughs> <laughs> i would say it's a, i would i would i would just say it's about a lot of things i think that's what was so successful about it i, I really like this film quite a bit uh is it it really raises a lot of issues it doesn't offer any answers it offers a lot of uh ambiguity and suggestion without um uh, you know pushing too hard to say to say something very clearly in a, about a situation or several situations really that that are really all about about as she says gray areas and we should note that the film is shot in black and white, which is lovely black and white, and, and uh, a choice I think really works for the film. And the Academy ratio also. It's shot. Yes, exactly. Is it weird that I thought this was a movie about racial identity? I mean, it, it honestly never occurred to me to, to think that the primary thrust of this movie was about uh, marital disorders or childhood trauma or the price of tea in Iran. Like... To me, the, I, I maybe this is just the most surfacey read possible, but it seems to me that it's really about this struggle between these two women who have different things and identify with different things and want different things, but also both kind of maybe want what the other has and are struggling with it. Like, is it a problem that I'm reading this film as what it appears to be on the surface? I'm thinking the same thing, but I think it is about passing as the title tells us but i think it's also about the decision to do that and between irene and claire what did you said one wants what the other one has and vice versa but the question arises is when irene sees claire passing and she sees a freedom that she feels that she doesn't have because she's bogged down in this life that she created for us and they're both creating falsehoods both of them that she's passing and Irene is passing for, you know, the bougie middle class black life that she wants. And I think that Clara being more open about what she's doing drives her crazy. But the same token, I think it's still about race. It's about being black or choosing not to be black and the repercussions of that. And these two mirror images, these women seeing each other and one of them being able to just run with it and the other one being trapped in her own kind of like in her own head. I, th I think you're absolutely right, but I, I, th I think Call has a point as well. I, I've seen this film twice now, and I, you know, I noticed things the second time around, or at least it had been a while since I'd seen it, so maybe I just I hadn't remembered these details. But there's so much going on between the marriage between Irene and Brian. There's a lot of uh, sexual, clearly some, some sexual unsatisfaction on his part. There's a seems to be an attraction, an unspoken attraction between Irene and, and Claire. There's something going on between Claire and Brian in some way. It's not clear exact exactly what. And there's the arguments that that Irene and Brian have about what to tell their kids about racism and how to tell it. And whether whether I think if you're if you're Irene to talk about it at all, there's a lot of uh, there's, there's a lot of side issues in addition to that main issue. Yes. Another thing this movie is about that I would just like throw on the pile, and you know, with the caveat, the uh, story I guess about racial identity is a, a part of this, but I think it's a film about beauty and desire in a lot of ways too, and where we see beauty and what it makes us desire. Like one of the most fascinating things about Claire is how drawn she is to this life that she has that she rejected, you, you know, and how drawn people in this world are to her. Like, I mean, she's a very 
beautiful, vivacious woman, and she's exotic in this context. But the context of that exoticism is, I guess, a double-edged sword. But this is all by way of saying, like, I think this is a gorgeous film. And like, and um, we didn't really like talk about it with uh, uh, the Cirque, which is also like a, a beautiful film. But and I feel like there's kind of a maybe a resistance to linger too much on the surface of these films when they are dealing with such deep topics. But I think when we're you know talking about something as surface level as appearance as skin color and identity like i think it's worth talking about those surfaces to a certain extent and this like from the first frame i was just besotted with like the the look of this film and the black and white photography the academy ratio of course the production design which i could just linger on forever all of that, I think it's it's important that this film looks as beautiful as I, it does. I think so that you can you can be drawn to these characters the way they are drawn to each other and kind of get attuned to these very subtle emotionally charged interactions between them. And you can maybe pick up on some attraction between Claire and Irene if that's what you're looking for, or between Claire and Brian, or you know, or it can just be you can uh, attach to Claire's view of. Irene's world, or you can like get into the whole idea of passing and how beauty standards fit into that. Anyway, there's a lot there, <laughs> uh, obviously. But what I, I guess, just want to say is, I think this is a really beautiful film. No, I when when, when actors make their when actors direct films, I mean, there's a, a lot of exceptions, but you, there's, the expectations are it's going to be a really an actor's film, you know, which really a lot of thought giving to the performances and and all that, and that's, that's all over this film. But but it's also it, it's a very stylish film. I mean, the, the sort of like the sort of slow pulls into focus. The one that opens the film, there's a couple of others as, as well, and 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 uh, you know the compositions are very uh, well well thought through. I mean, it, it is it is this is someone who spent a lot of time thinking about exactly how to make this film and, and I think did a terrific job of it. It looks like, you know, when a cinematographer decides to direct, the movie kind mm. of looks like this. Mm. Yeah. But so it's interesting an actor would take the time to set up the visuals and set that up, that world up and have it looking like something that would have come out of 1929. Yeah. So I think it's part of the way it looks is to kind of give you a feel of putting you back in Nella Larson's world because it's such a moment in time that's so small that this takes place in. That's what makes adds to the fascination of the entire movie. It's 1929, right before, they're in New York, it's right before, you know, what happened in 1929, stock market crashes, right? And so we have this middle class black family and you have Claire coming into her life to disrupt it in some fashion, whether it's in Irene's mind or not. And so it's kind of like this calm before the storm and Claire is that storm that comes in. But if you think about what else is going on, in the Harlem Renaissance, in, you know, these parties that she's putting on, in the fact that she has a maid who is dark skinned and who she doesn't kind of treat really well, if you think about it. <laughs> the creature comforts that she has are almost creature comforts that she would have if she were white. And I think that kind of bugs her about Claire being a little more free spirited and a little more blatant about, hey, I'm doing some white stuff here. I'm so used to being the odd person out on this podcast that I should not be surprised I'm the odd person out. But 
Man, I there were so many aspects of this movie that reminded me of Todd Haynes' Carol in terms of women's relationships and women's inner lives, in terms of sublimated desires and and meaningful looks, in terms of a woman putting about herself a pretense of glamour that everyone accepts, but you sort of have a, a feeling of like the hunger and, and sadness underneath it all. And I just kept wanting that color, the vivid, intense color of that movie. I kept wanting that here. You know, mm. I kept wanting these characters in these settings to come to life with that kind of like vivid lushness. I, I really felt the lack of the kind of like technicolor approach here, especially right after watching Imitation of Life. I felt the black and white kind of buddy personally. I could understand what it's doing in, in terms of, of period, but like, I don't know when an entire movie is about like unspoken buried emotions seething below the surface that's something i'd i'd like to see a little more reflected in the production design and i just think so much more could have been done here in terms of putting that kind of passion into the the cinematography since it can't come out in what the characters are actually willing to say out loud to each other you couldn't make this movie in color just like you couldn't make some like it hot in color Interesting. And I pointed that out in my review and that the reason why Billy Wilder shot some like it hot in black and white against the wishes of the studio was because he said, if you saw Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon in color, you would not believe they were women. Mm-hmm. And if you see any color pictures of stills from that movie, they look really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think the same thing happens here. One of the things I said in my review, and I got in trouble for this, but I don't care is that I said, as soon as I saw Tessa Thompson, I was like, girl, there's no way in hell. (laughs) Not with that nose and mouth. You ain't passing. And then I realized that I know what to look for. And therefore, I'm zeroing in on exactly what, I mean, I know she's black and and Afro-Latino and and, and other things, but just in general, you kind of know. We know what to look for. And the funny thing is about, a lot of this movie is about perception. And how her racist husband points out that she's getting darker and he calls you the racial slur of a name, nickname. And he's like, like, you're clueless. Like, he's not looking for what I'm looking for. And I think a lot of people had that disconnect. And if they made it in color, you would see the complexion of both Ruth Neg and Susan Thompson and you would be complete thrown out of the picture. So I think yeah, that's a really good point. White, it's a stylistic choice first and foremost. I think it's also a wise choice that they did it this way. And Rebecca Hall said that she cast this on purpose with two people that you knew might not be able to pass for white. That's fascinating. It's uh, That's honestly a, an aspect I hadn't thought about. I was in the same place with you in terms of like being surprised. I kept expecting at every moment for somebody to call Tessa Thompson out. I honestly didn't realize in that opening scene that she's meant to be seen as passing. And it was more the way she held her head Mm -hmm. and the way she used her hat as a defense that told me what she was doing than anything else. Uh, Those cloche hats with the the big wide brims such that you can look down and they they cover almost your entire face. Mm -hmm. It, It feels like it's doing a lot of the work there. But also just so is expectation, you know, so is is the fact that she walks into a store like that as if she expects people to wait on her. I kept waiting for the shoe to drop for for things to go bad. And I think in a way, just the fact that she was acting like she mostly felt she belonged there is part of what kind of sells us on the pretense. 
and the difference between how she holds herself nervously when she's passing versus how Ruth Nega holds herself, uh, I think, is a big part of the story in the first act of the movie. And it's very suspenseful. Yeah. That tea room scene, like when they first kind of lock eyes, like you can kind of, you can feel like the danger that Irene feels like she recognizes that she's been recognized. I can't tell if she recognizes the identity of who has recognized her or or not um, in in that moment before Claire uh, tells her who she is. But that scene where they first lock eyes is like really seared in my brain. And I think that's like very much the performances of of these two women that that's attributable to because it was yeah. it's just so charged i love those both those lead performances um uh, i think but I, if anything thompson's kind of the revelation here just because i'm so we're so used to seeing her of late especially playing like really confident really uh, uh assertive characters and and she is confident in in her world you get the feeling that, like that, that you know, with 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 her husband and and with uh, and with Hugh Wentworth, uh, the novelist by Bill Camp, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of confidence in, in that sphere. Uh, but that sphere is being shaken by Claire's arrival, and anytime she steps outside of it, uh, she's a different person. It's it's it's. I think it's really remarkable work. Yeah, I definitely don't think that she recognizes Claire yeah, as she, she says in, until Claire laughs. But right, yeah. that that sequence, it's not just the performances, it's also the framing and, and the editing. Like there is definitely a very complicated conversation that goes on between them just with them looking at each other without yeah. saying anything mm-hmm. as the camera moves back and forth and and their faces kind of go through why are you looking at me? What are you thinking? Am I in trouble? And just like this this sequence of events that you can see play out. Even though it isn't exaggerated or, you know, mimed effectively, it's it's pretty subtle. But I think everybody who's watching it is kind of on the same page with with where each of them are as they go through different phases. Yeah. In, in the book, it's, it's a very good adaptation of the scene in the book. I think Rebecca Hall does a really good job of putting most of the book on the screen and in interesting ways. In the book, Irene doesn't recognize her and she just gets tired of this white woman staring at her. She decides <laughs> to stare back at her. And that's kind of, the camera keeps moving away from Ruth Negan, keeps coming back to her, and then it finally fixates on her, and she's staring, and, you know, it's kind of scary at first, and then she gets up to come over and say, you know, don't you know me? But that moment that she gets up, if you don't know anything about this movie, you're thinking that Irene has been exposed, you know, she's been, mm-hmm. she's been caught, and they're going to throw her out worse. So I think it's, it's a very interesting, what she does with the camera work and what she does with the editing, like you said, it's really well done. It's sort of visually telling the story. It's interesting uh, to hear you say what the scene is in the book and her thinking a white woman is looking at her because uh, kind of what I was, what I meant when I said, like, I didn't know if she recognizes the identity of the person looking at her. I thought that there was a possibility that she did recognize that Claire is black and passing. And I think maybe that was seeded because I had read your review, Odie, and I remember that that line about, you know, is thinking that Irene isn't isn't fooling anyone. So I was like, well, maybe maybe Irene also has that uh, that <laughs> recognition and she is is not fooled and she sees another woman passing and that is like just as dangerous in that situation as if it was a, a white woman. So I think that's kind of another maybe layer that's happening on that interaction. There's a line in this movie and it's interesting because in the book, it's spoken by, to a different person. Irene says it 
but she says it to a different person. But I think in both instances, the reaction is the same. The the, the intention is the same. Uh, when uh, Hugh says to her, you know, why would Clara want to come up here to Harlem and risk being exposed? And she says, you know, she's come up here to do what you do. The same for the same reason you are to see Negroes. And in the book, she says this to Claire. You see, you know, why Claire is asking, why is Hugh coming up here? And she says, mm. for the same reason you're coming up here um. to see Negroes. And it, it works exactly the same way in the movie and the book. It's kind of a sarcastic line, but it's also true. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting that Claire wanted to come back up and be reunited with everything that she left that she misses and is willing to risk the danger because in a lot of ways she sees irresponsible. She doesn't think about the danger of, of this. And it gets ties to the ending of, of the movie as well. She doesn't, she's so freewheeling. I said she was flapper like, as opposed to Irene being just, you know, bottled up and bougie. And Irene, I, you know, was jealous of the fact that this woman just could throw caution to the wind. I think, uh, a lot of people who are like that look at people that have the ability to be spontaneous and feel some envy. I I, I personally had a tie to that feeling like, you know, I, I want to be, you know, reckless and I just, it's not in my personality. <laughs> so I kind of could see that you know, being a problem between Irene and Claire. The fact that Claire seems to be freer, even though she's trapped in an even bigger prison. But in Irene's mind, it's the grass is greener, right? On the other side. So, so I, I find that since the story is told from Irene's perspective, there's a lot of things that we're filling in on our own because we are. She's us. She's the stand-in. She's the audience standing, and she's not, in my opinion, reliable. I, I feel you on that. On that sense of like sometimes envying more reckless people or more spontaneous people, but I feel like here part of the dynamic is that. Claire is being reckless because I, I think she actively wants to be exposed. I think that she is aware of how awful her husband is and she's aware of how constraining her life is. And I think she's flirting with exposure because she cannot just consciously walk away from the life she's built for herself, but she can risk being exposed and kind of pretend at the same time that she doesn't she doesn't mind that it wouldn't be the worst thing because she's reckless or or lighthearted or uh, spontaneous or what have you. But I, I feel like there's a calculation to what she's doing that just sort of feels like somebody dangling their toes off the edge of a cliff. Mm -hmm. I feel like she's trying to get out of her life without telling herself that she is, which honestly kind of plays into, as we're talking about, like, what is this movie really about? I do think that one of the biggest things this movie is about is honesty, just on every level, you know, from from the macro of like, can we teach our children about racism or should we hide it from them to who am I pretending to be and, and who am I really to just super small things like their author friend, Pretending that he bumped into Irene, that's, again, a little ambiguous from what you actually see. But he takes the blame for that moment. And it seems like he's being dishonest or she's being dishonest, one or the other, about what exactly happened there and why and how she feels about it when she says, you know, it was, it was a terribly ugly thing and I'm glad it broke anyway. There's just so many moments during this movie where people are being dishonest either to themselves or to everyone around them or both, 
or are advocating dishonesty for a cause. And it's just, it's a giant theme that runs throughout the entire film. Well, speaking of ambiguity, we should probably talk about the ending of the film. So, so spoiler warnings, uh, ahoy. Um, but, um, yeah, so let's talk about the end of this movie. What, 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 um, we, the ending up, of um, passing explained by the next picture in, show. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I don't know how much yeah. explaining he's going to look. Yeah, here. I, I, no. I, mean, I have to confess, I am not usually a person that do, does this, but the second I finished watching this movie, I I googled the question that's on everybody's minds and found twenty explainers and read three of them, and all of them said, "Eh, don't know." I just wanted well, to know if it was if the ambiguity was taken from the source material. That was yes. yeah. that was what my Googling was. And apparently it was. So yep. <laughs> But it's a different yeah. ambiguity. Oh, can you can uh, you explain? What do you mean? Well, okay, so let, wait, maybe the first question we should ask is what do you think happened? I didn't say you're really ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> where but, but everybody I mean, has I, a theory. What do you yeah. think happened? I have a theory of what I think happened, and then when I read the source material, I realized that it was a lot more sinister than what I thought. The worst possible read you can put on this in terms of Irene, what Irene's actions is she is breaking the teapot. Uh, this is something that, that, that is not, that is cumbersome to her, that she, she gives that speech about how this teapot was cumbersome and, you know, this is figured out, you know, one way to get rid of it would be to break it. Or, it's for to, yeah. I mean, it does, does she push her? I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, or is she protecting her? I, I, one thing that's haunts me about that moment is, is how, serene Claire's face yeah, is. The way she walks, walks to the window. The way yeah. she positions yeah. herself in front of the window. Yeah. Or maybe does she or does she jump? I mean, it's really not it's not clear. Which, which really ties to what you were saying before about how she wants to get caught. And this is could this be her moment of freedom? Could this be her break from prison? That's what I took away from the ending. I, I do feel that she threw herself out the window or fell out the window. And I think the reason I feel that while well, acknowledging that it is not the answer um, is, like I said, the the purposeful way that Claire walks to the window after her husband barges in in anger. It, it's like she recognizes the opportunity in that moment. And the look between Claire and Irene that, that um, right before he he charges at her, it, it, feel, it felt like a look of understanding uh, on Irene's part of what Claire was intending to do. It didn't feel like a look of, it didn't feel sinister to me, but I'm maybe based on Odie's own foreshadowing, maybe that is, that uh, comes across different in the book. But well, um, I, I don't, I don't know. The book is ambiguous, but again, I think it's a different kind of ambiguity. This is what I thought happened. I thought that Irene did the Willy Wonka thing. I thought that her husband charged Claire, that, that Claire's husband charged her. And I think that he made her unsteady and Irene put her hand out to try to stop it, but she's that Willy Wonka thing. No, don't do it. Stop. Uh, yeah, don't. Yeah. Even though she really wants her husband, the husband, to push her out the window. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, Irene is the the, the book is you know told uh, the omniscient narrator is telling us what Irene is thinking about, and Irene doesn't want to think about what happened, and so it gives more of an idea that since Irene thinks that Claire is cheating on that uh, Brian is cheating on her with Claire because in the book they sleep in different beds they haven't had sex there's a whole kind of thought that I thought initially when I was reading the book that Brian may have been gay and that he just didn't want anything to do with her but it turns out that doesn't seem to be the case I think she's like well Claire is beautiful and my husband is going after her and if she gotta go 
And so in the book, it seems more like that Irene pushed her out the window. Hmm. But it's still ambiguous. But there's the extra added note of Irene's state of mind before this happens that we know about from the book that the movie doesn't give us. It gives us the teapot speech, which is kind of similar to what's happening in the book. But the movie takes the extra layer out of us hearing Irene's inner thoughts that we hear in the book. And that makes it even more ambiguous. But I initially thought that Irene put her hand out to pretend that she was stopping this from happen, happening and let it happen. Let the husband knock her out the window. That's what I initially thought. I definitely like that interpretation better. Like, as far as kind of what I want to have happen, I do like the idea of Irene taking that moment to dismiss her rival and, and her problems and resolve all of her inner conflict about what is true and what needs to be true and what should be true. But I just, the way it's staged as she kind of throws out a hand at hip level, uh, it's I, such an ineffectual like, yeah. posture, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's there's no way that I can believe that she successfully pushed somebody over a balcony, mm-hmm. like with that one little flailing hand. But I do really like the interpretation that the little flailing hand is a, a pretense of like, look, look at all that I'm doing to protect you uh, while doing nothing. nothing. Well, she holds it out there like after Claire has already gone off the balcony, yeah. like she she doesn't realize it's almost like she thinks she's grabbing for her hand in solidarity and that hand isn't there and it takes her a minute to realize why. But it, it also is very clear in the staging that we don't see the moment of impact or lack of impact. Like we have no idea what her husband experiences in terms of how close he is or whether he even managed to touch her before she goes over the edge. So, you know, if we're trying to pin down what exactly happened, I think the Claire suicide theory is the most reasonable theory, especially based on kind of where it goes from there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I do. I do kind of like that moment of uncertainty about exactly what happened. Right. It also is worth remembering that her husband is there only because uh, Irene didn't warn Claire that she'd been exposed to made made a pointedly does not tell her yeah. makes a half hearted attempt and then then pulls back. Yeah. Where was the follow up phone call, Irene? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. So that you're you're saying the the phone call was the. Uh, <laughs> equivalent of that little uh, outthrust hand. Kind yeah. of, yeah. yeah. No, stop, don't. <laughs> and the book makes that a little bit more explicit, why she doesn't call her. So, I mean, but even before I read, I read the book after I'd seen the movie, so, you know, because I, I was kind of curious as to is the ambiguity on the part of the filmmaker being kind of, you know, clever, or is the ambiguity part of the source material? And it is, but I think it's a different ambiguity in the source material. I think the, the source material leads you to kind of question Irene's motivations, which kind of tied into my Willy Wonka thing. You know, wait, don't, mm-hmm. no, that kind of thing, where she's like, well, my rival is gone, and now Brian's going to come back to me, although maybe not. <laughs> I will say there is, there's so much ambiguity in this film about exactly what Claire is doing, exactly what Irene suspects or what she wants, exactly how Brian feels about either of them. There are so many open questions. But for me, the film hits hardest when it's unambiguous, when it's it's blatant. And Odie called out that specific line, the same reason you're here to see black people. Like that hit really hard. And the other thing that hit really hard for me was the conversation that Irene and, ha- and Brian have in bed, where he says that people who are, are out passing as white 
like always come back to the black community. And she says, why would they want to? And he says, if I knew that, I'd know what race is. Yeah. And it's just this like slash of decisiveness in the middle of all of these like big muddled questions like who am i who i want to be he just lays it down on the line like this is a big complicated thing and and people can't pin it down and she responds to that you'd think they'd be satisfied being white and he says rot who's who's satisfied being anything Mm -hmm. and i wrote that conversation down because that to me like much more so than all the open questions is the heart of the film who's satisfied being anything and and the beautiful thing about that is that is directly from mm. the book verbatim, and it's a beautiful thing that I, it's the thing about adapting a book is what you keep and what you toss out. And I always use Jackie Brown as a great example of how that a lot of that dialogue sounds exactly like Tarantino. And I did I did a video mm. essay on Jackie Brown, and I put Elmer Leonard's words up on the screen and the actual dialogue up on the screen to show you that. 60% of the dialogue in Jackie Brown is directly from the book, but it sounds so much like Tarantino that it works. Hmm. And so I think with her adaptation of this novel, which was written in 1929, and is so full of things that I'm sure Nella Larson didn't even realize she was doing about intersectionality and sexuality, you know, and she was just telling a story. She probably didn't have the words for you know the terms that we have for it now. It feels so like timely and so fresh. She knew exactly what to take out of the book and what to leave behind that may have been a little bit dated or maybe didn't, maybe didn't translate well. So I want to just kind of give props to Rebecca Hall for her adaptation, screenplay adaptation. I mean, it's just no loss. This book is technically on the screen, but you know, the way she put it on there and the way she moved things around, it, it you know makes it even more cinematic without being unfaithful to the material. A good movie. I think we all agree on that. We'll be talking about it more after the break when we bring in Invitation of Life and make some connections. Don't think whatever happens, I'll ever forget how good you've been to me. What are you talking about? I mean it. You see, I... I don't have proper morals or sense of duty like you. You're talking nonsense. But it's true, Weenie. Don't you realize? I'm not like you one bit. Why, to get the things I want so badly, I'd do anything. Hurt anybody. Throw anything away. Anything. I'm not safe. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. There's obviously a lot of things these films have in common in terms of uh, themes and, 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 and narrative. Uh, I think we should start with a point of contrast. Uh, let's talk about style. Odie, you, you've got some thoughts about uh, the way these films look compared to one another, right? Yeah, I think that they're, everything is intentional in the way that they look. I think for Cirque, his movie is so bright and so colorful, that Eastman color popping off the screen, but it is so also as fake- and as over the top as some of the melodrama, and it's intentional 
Whereas I feel with passing, the cinematography is as subtle and ambiguous and tight as the story. So I think they both serve each other. The style is intentional, as intentional as anything else that's happening in this in the movies. I think that they both focus on a specific style, but a different purpose. I think almost the opposite purpose, ends of the spectrum, uh, uh, extremes, you know. One is very, very subtle. And like you said, the black and white cinematography kind of even may even dull the senses uh, you know, or the emotions. Whereas in Cirque's version, I mean, could it get more colorful? I mean, it makes Dario Argento look, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I say they suspiria it up. Whenever something's really, really, really colorful, I say that they suspiria it up. <laughs> so... <laughs> Very appropriate for anything involving red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still can't get over the fact that one of the first credits, uh, an imitation of life, is for Lana Turner's gowns and jewels, <laughs> which <laughs> they just cost a million dollars. Yeah, and uh, I I didn't like fact check this, but I did find like a like five things you didn't know about imitation of life list, and apparently Turner uh, declined a salary in exchange for uh, a portion of 50% the, the profits. Yeah, of the profits. So, yeah, so uh, good for her. It was a hit, but so. So that money went to all of her gowns and jewels. Uh, so <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting, speaking of style, that Imitation of Life opens like the, the opening credits is that like slow rain of out of focus jewelry, mm-hmm. which eventually just becomes a pile up of gems. And like gems and, and jewelry, not really like an open motif throughout the movie. Like certainly Lana Turner's costumes get more and more elaborate. And even the first time she's on stage, she ends up uh, covered with like giant paste gems. And it's just completely ridiculously blinged out. And like over time, her her costumes get like more and more elaborate, more and more expensive looking well, but even so, it's it's a little odd to me that Cirque specifically saw a rain of diamonds, like completely divorced of any context, as the perfect way to frame the film. I actually, this isn't my observation, but it's, it's the audio commentary. Uh, uh, film historian Foster Hirsch makes a great observation about those opening credits, which is you're not seeing diamonds, you're seeing rhinestones. Yeah, you're seeing rhinestones. I was going to say the same you're, thing. You're, you're not you're not hearing Nat King Cole. You're 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 hearing a fake Nat King Cole. Oh, um, so it's, 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 Nat King Cole. That's what you yep. used to say as kids. This is the yeah, lots of, of Nat King Cole. Right, like lots of lots of imitations going on in those opening credits already. That is that's an incredible revelation. All right, that that helps a lot. If we're going to talk about comparing the framing, though, passing is framed by a slow move into seeing everything in focus, like a, a slow move from a completely gray wash where where nothing stands out to moving very sharply in in focus specifically on people's feet on mm-hmm. on the ground on shoes they're walking yeah. yeah and then it ends with moving from sharp focus back out into that very uh vague fuzziness again but this time it's like going up into the air and and everything shrinking down you know it's it's a it's the difference between starting with a worm's eye view and ending with a bird's eye view, but in both cases, like moving from from focus to non-focus and, and the other way around. I, I just think that that's interesting framing. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Doesn't passing also fade to white? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's just snow and then yeah. the snow becomes just yeah. sort of white. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it feels like a similar sort of vaguely thematic flourish uh, akin to the rhinestones and fake Nat King Cole that opens Imitation of Life, too. 
And wow, then, yeah. I would not have gotten that. And <laughs> I, now I'm really happy with it as a, as a revelation about what we were seeing in those moments. Can we talk about the gaze of both of these? Both of these are based on novels written by women. And around the same time, you know, Imitation Life was written in 1933. Fanny Hurst is a, a friend of Zora Neale Hurston, who was, you know, part of the Harlem Renaissance at ties to Nell Larson. And then Passing is written by, you know, Rebecca Hall, the adaptation. And uh, Sirk's adaptation is by, by a man and a woman. Interesting to kind of look at how this would differ or what we would see these women focus on because it's always going to be a, the different gaze when you're taking it from their perspective. And how I think it's much different than you know, the Cirque's direction as a man and Rebecca Hall's direction as a woman and things they focus on or things they focus on, but they still beholden to the fact that these are stories that were written by women and have uh, their particular view, viewpoint and how they don't really dilute that viewpoint. Cirque's movie is still technically the derisive women's picture. So it has all these things that women's pictures have in them. And Passing is looking at, if you think about it, the men in this movie, the kids, Brian, Hugh, the other men that are interested in Claire, you know, a lot of times they're more like kind of, not I don't want to say afterthoughts, but more like the focus isn't on them. And even in Imitation Life, all these men as she cycles through the John Gavin character, Dana Hurley, char- Hurley character, Eleanor's dad, they're part of the movie, but, you know, would you miss them if they were gone? Well, they're also all obstacles to yes. what Laura wants. Like, uh, we, we didn't really talk about Steve in uh, in the Imitation of Life, but oh, man, like, I, I still don't understand the logic that she can't act she can't be an actor and get married but like that is the whole crux of of their relationship she has to choose between acting and being happy little housewife yeah yeah um which is like it feels a little bit like a false dichotomy but maybe it's just the time i don't know i um, yeah, i think it was a less di- a less false dichotomy in yeah. 59 and yeah maybe an even less false than that dichotomy like in the in the 30s yeah when the other version was made or even earlier when it was written. But if nothing else, I think there's like, even if there, there wasn't an expectation that like, of course a wife wouldn't work. The wife's job is to have children and maintain the home. There's still the expectation in all of those times that a wife is going to let her husband steer. And that if, if her husband felt that it was important that she be on the stage or on the screen, he would manage her and he would give her permission. And the fact that Steve is just up front, like, no, this is a childish dream. Like, now you're going to marry me and, and give up every ambition you had. Right. And she refuses that and in the process has to refuse him. I think that just becomes important because she's not just giving she's giving up on love quote unquote and question mark companionship uh, well no she's she's giving up on like she does sort of say i i don't know i might love you but uh i definitely don't love yeah. you under these terms yeah right. she's also been a wife and maybe not in a rush to get to be a, a yeah. wife again and as, as, as a connection to to passing we have irene and clara both wives irene doesn't have a a, a job but she 
works all the time on, on various charitable causes. Uh, Claire has to find ways to fill her time and seems to be shopping and then, um, you know, just kind of finding her way into, into Irene's life and, and getting back up to out, out of Harlem. These are, these are people without occupations who have to find who, or maybe, I don't want to say a little drift because they're not working, but, but, the, but they're, they're, they don't have anything to stake their identity to beyond being wives. The society dame type mm-hmm. thing. It's that Claire has more money to be more of a society dame than Irene does, but they both are serving that kind of purpose of, I have nothing to do, so let me try to do these charitable causes, or let me, you know, just be a, you know, freewheeling spirit, give me something to do, and to occupy my time. You know, Brian's a doctor, right? If I remember correctly, yeah. uh, Irene's yeah. husband's a doctor, mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. big famous doctor. That's kind of where their income is coming from, why they can afford to have a maid and have a nice brownstone probably on Striver's Row. At the same time, he's like his own ambitions are sort of mentioned, but but mostly sidelined in an interesting way. You you asked if we would miss the men in the movie if they disappeared. And I would definitely miss Brian's insight and like that that conversation that they have that's so key to the movie, I, I would miss. But for the most part, his function in the movie is a function that we're just so used to seeing women play in yeah. movies. Like, he's an obstacle, he's a barrier, he's an object of desire and jealousy, he's ambiguous, he's potentially, you know, he can't help himself, he's just a man. If, uh, you know, some some pretty little thing comes along and turns his head, like, who can blame him for straying? Which is just kind of a mentality that so often surrounded women in in stories and cinematic stories like yeah you know you just you can't trust them uh if somebody handsome comes along like you you need to you need to keep an eye on them and rein them in because you know you know how they are and he's in that role and it's honestly kind of delightful but he's also he's also kind of a pain in the ass you know he's one of my least favorite uh, women in films cliches is what I've always referred to as the the John Grisham whiny wife. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I I, uh, I I like it that everybody laughs because uh, then we can avoid getting mad about it. Because when I first encountered it in the firm, it it made me pretty mad, and then I've seen it over and over and over again. The wife whose only purpose in the film is to say, "Stop doing the exciting things that make this movie interesting." Resting and come back to your children and the dinner table and a, a boring life. Stop making plot happen. If you loved me, you'd stop making plot happen. And here, he's not that strident about it, but he does keep tripping Irene up. You know, she she thinks she knows who she is and what she wants. And he's like, yes, but, but race does exist and it's a problem for our sons. And she's like, I don't want to think about that. And he's like, I've invited Claire into our lives. And she's like, I don't want to think about that. Just repeatedly, he keeps driving the action by denying her the, the denial that she wants. And it is pretty important to the film. Uh, so that brings up the issue of, of these are husbands and wives, but they're also also parents. Uh, parent is at the heart at, of both of these. I'll, I'll throw out as a way of, of of starting the conversation. Let me throw out one thing that that um, that that's kind of nagged nagged me. Uh, not not in a way that's a flaw of the movie. Just kind of I've been thinking can, about. Can, can I guess? Because I think it might be the same thing that I've been itching to bring yeah. up. Is it uh, Claire's child? 
Yes, where's yes. Claire's child? <laughs> I was wondering about that myself. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, Claire, Claire is a mother, and we, we get that information early in the film, and I think it certainly informs Irene's alarm about what Claire is doing. But, I mean, obviously, there's not a lot of resolution in the, anywhere in this film, but, you know, we don't really get much more information about Claire's feelings about being a mother. But if based on her behavior, I think we can infer some of those feelings or at least like how important she sees her role as a mother being compared to Irene. Isn't she the one that says, uh, I think being a mother is the cruelest thing in the world? Yep. I I feel like that's her big statement Mm -hmm. is just kind of like throwing down like everything that we see Irene struggling with in terms of how to raise her children, what to tell them and when, how they're going to navigate the world. We just have to get implied in terms of what Claire is teaching her daughter and how how her daughter is living her life. Her daughter at like boarding school or something. She's away. She's yeah. at school, like you know, she's in Switzerland or something. I don't have any sense for how old her daughter is. Do we? Do we get clarity on that? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. Old enough to be sent away to school, but you know, yeah. uh, which, which I, honestly another, doesn't mean much. Yeah, and and another connection with imitation of life. Exactly. So Susie wanted to get away. <clears throat> There's something, and I don't remember. I think it's implied in the movie, but it's more explicit in the book. Claire only has one kid, daughter, and you know. Uh, Irene is too, and Claire said that she didn't want to have any more children because she wouldn't, didn't want to risk the fact that one of them might come out too dark mm-hmm. and expose who she is. So her mother being cruel is kind of double-edged in that regard, in that she got lucky that this right. daughter was apparently lad enough to pass as well. Yeah. And there's but, dialogue to that uh, in, in that hotel room scene between them. Like she does have sort of a little off the cuff remark about like those nine months. She was so, so worried, you know, right. how, how they were going to come out. You, you get sort of the parallel of that at the very beginning of Imitation of Life when Annie talks about how, uh, you know, her daughter was born able to pass because her husband was was practically white, mm-hmm. which just opens up, I, you know, getting getting back to, well, you never asked, like, we never, we never get that much of Annie's backstory in terms of what it was like to be married to a man who apparently could or came close to being able to pass for white himself and what the optics of somebody with with such dark skin being with somebody with such light skin would have been like at the time and she says he disappears so do you have to wonder did he disappear into the world of passing for white mm. yeah exactly or did he just decide to go start a new life even starting a new life as a, a black man elsewhere who didn't feel saddled with uh, such a dark-skinned wife you know if he if he found either a woman who believed he was white or just somebody else who could pass he could potentially have lived a, a very different life it's there's a lot of imitation of life much less devoted to ambiguity than passing but that's a big and interesting ambiguity that i feel like the movie deliberately doesn't dig into partially because it's another giant piece of story in a movie that's already got a lot of story but also maybe just again yet another thing that laura just never thought to ask about you know as close as she and annie seem to be it just doesn't seem to occur to her like this is a person with a life and a history and and emotions that aren't just boy i sure i wish had a closet to sleep in right 
It's also curious that Sarah Jane doesn't uh, express any curiosity about her hmm. her father in the in the film, or or we don't see her, you know, given how uh, consumed she is with the, with her her skin color in relation to her mother's. Like, there's a big important missing piece there that the film doesn't really give us much information about. Yeah, uh, we're, we're touching now on on the fact that these are both. Uh pieces of social commentary and in one way or another um i think one big difference is that uh, invitation of life is from the heart of the 50s dealing with the 1950s this is uh, passing as a 2021 film dealing with with uh the harlem uh in america of almost 100 years previous how does that change the way they deal with the issues they're addressing if it does I feel like it may be less about the time period and maybe more about the filmmaker's connection to the material that is maybe the contrast. Like Hall's backstory, like leading up to wanting to make this movie is so fascinating and feels like inextricable from what the movie is, (laughs) you know? Um, And I don't think that... Cirque had, you know, he he certainly had an awareness of the social commentary that was in his his film, but he didn't have the personal connection to it that that Hall does in hers. Passing just feels a lot more emotionally real, you know. You know, if you take away the melodrama, soap soap operatics, all those you know terms we we apply to Cirque, like even if it didn't have all of that, I think passing would still feel more real because it is born of a personal desire to tell this story. Right. And even the source material, you know, Fanny Hurst is a white woman who, again, was, you know, almost like Hugh going to the Harlem Renaissance and her Zorino Hurston was her friend. And apparently the whole inspiration for Imitation of Life was based on the trip to Canada that she took with Zorino Hurston uh, back in the late 20s, to my understanding. I think also the things that are missing, maybe things that weren't thought about, you know, Hall having a history might consider something just like I considered that Tessa Thompson wasn't going to pass because I saw that she had, you know, what my opinion would be a black nose and mouth. Uh, I would look for that, whereas Cirque wouldn't look for or Fanny Hurst wouldn't look for, you know, why doesn't Sarah Jane to say, I want to go live with my daddy or even the curiosity of wanting to know what happened to Annie's former husband, whereas passing, it seems to be more curious and more in tune with its storyline because it's written by, you know, a, a mixed race person and it's directed by someone of mixed ancestry as well. So they're going to see things that people didn't see or maybe focus on things or maybe consider questions like we just considered that the filmmakers didn't bother to ask, that Cirk didn't bother to ask, I mean. But I think in terms of the way it handles the kind of the race element, it's kind of like saying things haven't changed at all between 1929 and 1959, except that we're in Harlem in passing and we're in, where the hell are we in imitation life? <laughs> <laughs> Long Island at the end, and New yeah. York at the beginning, and yeah. I think, I think Long, Long Island. Long Island, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's a completely different like universe, but the same thing's happening in it. Yeah, I, I mentioned when we were talking about an imitation of life 
that I feel like the movie is is very of its time stylistically and and narratively and in acting and in a lot of ways, but that it does still have contemporary resonance. And one of the big things that I'm thinking of there is just the sense that it's really sharply interrogating to what degree race is just a societal construct uh, that has no meaning except what people choose to put on it. You know, we see so many people respond to Sarah Jane as though she's white and treat her in a specific way. And the second they see her mother, she mutates into a completely different person for them. Like the everything that they know about her no longer matters. And that's one of the most scathing things about the movie is the feeling that her mother looking a certain way is more important than any interaction that that a given person has ever had with her anything they they know about her anything they've experienced just completely goes out the window when they get this new piece of information it's a betrayal yeah they 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 feel like how how dare you have put me in a position where i humanized you in a way that i now don't feel like you deserve right. how dare you make me treat you like the person that you appeared to be in every single way and still appear to be. It's exasperating, but it's also just very pointed. You know, it's it's asking people to ask the, the question, why is this this way when it makes absolutely no sense? And I think that maybe one of the big differences between the two movies is that for me, at least, it just feels like Imitation of Life is aimed more at the white audience, just asking them, where do these constructs come from? Why do you respond this way? What's wrong with you? Whereas Passing, I think, is maybe more concerned with the experiences of two Black women, both trying to figure out who they are, who they need to be, who they want to be. And it feels like that story is more about and for them than it is like a lecture being delivered to a white audience. And that's, that's a great point. Uh, well, we've done a lot with Passing's ending before, but I want to at least bring it back br- briefly uh, as a as a way of you know talking about in the way both these ends is a way of you know, sort of maybe ending this section of, of the podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, these have downer endings, but different kind of downer endings for 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 sure. Uh, one is one is more of a traditional tragedy. Uh, the other is is as we talked about, is this kind of strange ambiguous we're not sure what happened and we're kind of left to to contemplate as the camera pulls up to to, to space or whatever uh so how do you feel about the way these films end compared to one another i mean i think there's a lot of difference and a lot of complexity there but the simplest version of of the response there is they both kind of take advantage of the fact that the the ultimate way to get sympathy for your character is to kill them mm-hmm. they both kind of go to a place of Whatever this character might have been to you, like you cannot respond to them as like an ongoing concern in the world who might make mistakes at some point. Like the the dead person is is an angel, you know, basically the the dead person is, you know, setting aside uh, what we what we do in the society when somebody's killed by police violence and we have to interrogate whether they ever made a mistake in their life, which is a very common thing. I feel like both of these stories kind of have to come to a point of, well, we're going to kill off the one of the black characters so you can go to a place of, of pure unbridled sympathy with them that is not in any way complicated by how you feel about their choices or how you feel about their their relationships or how you feel about their pain. 
And it's effective, it's emotional, it's it's powerful, but it's it's also just the slightest bit cheap, as far as I'm concerned. Can I take a much darker view of this for a second? At the end of the day, um, you know, I said death is the great equalizer. It's the thing I said in my piece on imitation of life, where no matter who you are, what happens to you, or how rich you are, the one thing that we all have in common is you're going to die. And I think that both of these characters are in their own way suffering. Uh, and they're suffering um, based on what life is doing to them or what somebody's doing to them or what they've done to themselves. And now that you know, we, we go back to Claire maybe jumping out of the window, we don't really know what's wrong with Annie. She, yeah, she dies of a broken heart, which is really nice, nice and, mm-hmm. and melodramatic and simplistic. But we really don't know, like, you know, how did she just give up her will to live and she died? Whereas Claire may have made the choice to jump out the window. We don't know. But at the end of the day, we've watched these characters in some form of uh, internal struggle, although it's much more you know vague in Claire's point. But now they don't have to worry about it anymore. They're kind of like liberated, as horrible as that sounds, by the fact that, you know, they've given up the ghost. And I think both movies kind of almost play with that. That not just that it's tragic and that we have to have sympathy for these people who died, but, you know, they're not going to suffer anymore. Like you say about people who were sick and, you know, they finally, you know, went on to glory. And I looked at it from that perspective. They're both tragedies. And that's why, you you know, so everybody's dead at the end of all of Shakespeare's tragedies. <laughs> yeah. But in the same token, it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the living sometimes envy the dead. And I think in some ways they might say that. At the same time, anytime you're, you're ending a movie with the message, this person suffered in a way that could only be solved by death. Right. Like, I understand trying to to sort of present that as, you know, she's, here's Mahalia Jackson uh, singing, like she's, as as you said, like, here's the, the sweet chariot has swung low and is right. carrying you home to glory. But at the same time, what you're saying is these problems will only be solved by your death. Like there, there is no solving them in life. And that is a, always a really dark ending to have. Right. And it's always, that's a common ending for minorities. You look at all of the movies about, you know, uh, you know, gay people, like lesbians, or, or gay men, or you know, black people who are uppity, if you will, they gotta go. The movie makes them have to go. That's how you get sympathy for them. So what you're saying has a lot of relevance, and, and, and you know, I agree with you. I just was thinking about you know, we're gonna take a, like I said, a much darker view of it. Mm-hmm. That they're not suffering anymore, but it is. It's a cheap way to get sympathy for a marginalized character, but I think that at least in the case of passing, did the ambiguity of what happened to her kind of supersedes the fact that, you know, that she died. Whereas with Annie, you kind of know where this movie's going. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of want to just wrap up by like examining the beats that follow the actual deaths of of these characters, because I think, again, like the another big point of contrast here is imitation of life gives you catharsis. Like, yes, yes. it's very sad catharsis, but you like the people who needed to learn their lessons learn their learn their lessons and they're they're sad about what they've done and they're atoning. You know, uh Laura gives Annie the the Best Queen's f- funeral, exactly. the royal funeral. Yeah, yeah, and her and her daughter, you know, begs for, for forgiveness. Like there is that, you know, people learning their lesson, and in passing, it's just kind of like shock and silence, and 
you're left to sit with that feeling. And oh, I don't think that's true at all, though. Oh, okay. I, I think that what's kind of extra horrifying about passing is that what you get is an immediate decision from the police that this doesn't bear investigating. Well, We're not going to look into it any further. Like you have that kind of very brief interrogation of various characters and Brian thinks she was murdered and Irene says, no, it was an accident. And the, the police immediately say, oh, there's nothing more suspicious here. Uh, no reason for further inquest. And they shut it all down. And what you're being told in that moment, like in Imitation of Life, Annie gets to call the shots. She has set up everything that she wants uh, to to surround her death and her funeral. And we see her get it exactly as she defined it and, and demanded it. She gets to control everything about her death in the end. Claire may have chosen to die, but what we immediately see is other people defining her death for her and deciding that her death isn't worth investigating or even thinking about further. I, I think that's the maybe the the darkest part of all of this. Which also brings up the thought that maybe they said that because her husband pushed her out the window mm -hmm. and it was not going to be any justice for a white man killing a black woman. They did yeah, for sure. Well, well, you know, he pushed her out the window and, you know, whatever. Yeah, the film easily could have ended with her body um, and that could have been the final shot. But I think everything that happens after that is pretty, pretty meaningful. Yeah. But no catharsis. No catharsis. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's not a whole lot of catharsis in... We we don't care enough to look into this. Yes. Yeah. Well, we care about both these films and, and hope uh, that you have enjoyed uh, us speaking about them. And we'll check them out if you haven't already. Uh, Passing is currently streaming on Netflix. It might still be playing a few theaters in that Netflix. Maybe it'll play some theaters kind of way. Uh, Invitation of Life is rentable through the usual streaming service. There's also a very good Blu-ray edition that contains both versions of the film and some audio commentaries and other cool features and stuff. So uh, if you're curious at all, it's worth picking that up. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time for your next picture show where we recommend films or film-related items we think our listeners might enjoy. All right, we'll start with our guest. Uh, what have you got this week that's good? Well, since we were talking about Douglas Sirk and, and Juanita Moore, I wanted to bring up a couple of things. First of all, Douglas Sirk, besides all of his uh, melodramas, he'd done some noirs. And I mentioned very briefly Lord, the uh, Lucille Ball movie, where Lucille Ball, who's very, very good in it, plays a character who is a strong-willed chorus girl woman who is put out as bait for a serial killer. And it sounds a lot more salacious than it is. And it's, it's a lot of fun and a different thing from uh, Douglas Sirk. A couple of years after that, I think it's 1947, Juanita Moore shows up in a movie called Women's Prison that I have much affection for. It's 1955. It may be the first, quote-unquote, Chicks and Chains movie ever made. And Juanita Moore plays a prisoner. And she's a prisoner under the evil guy gaze of lesbian warden Ida Lupino. Oh, wow. And Audrey Tauter is in this. And it's a lot of fun. It's shockingly violent for a 1955 movie, but it does take place in prison. So, And you get to see her doing something completely different than what she's doing in Imitation of Life. She's a fellow prisoner in, in this movie. So I, I find that can be quite interesting. And there's also, for, for the uh, and for folks who like anime, there's also Belle, which 
I think it's coming out in January for the general public, but in December, if you're in a coastal city, you'll be able to see it. It's a wonderful anime about social media. And I said, I'll just leave it at that. Social media and celebrity and how that's used for and against you. And it's gorgeous to look at. I am so looking forward to that yeah, movie. Me too. And I have missed like a couple of different chances at this point to see it. Uh, so I'm just, I'm holding out for a, a version of it on the big screen. Uh, it, it looks amazing. Yeah, it knocks the wind out of you too. It's really, really, really well done. Well, speaking of anime, uh, as it happens, this isn't a movie, um, but Scott isn't here to uh, make angry, <laughs> rumping noises. And it's certainly going to be interesting to people who do love movies. Hayao Miyazaki's first directorial project is finally available in the States for the first time. Uh, back in 1978, he and Isao Takahata, who became two of the, the co-founders, two of the three co-founders of Studio Ghibli, worked together on a TV show called Future Boy Conan or Conan the Boy in the Future, depending on your translation. And it's, it's as far as I know, never been translated officially for release in America. But Shout Factory is putting it out on Blu-ray and G-Kids is releasing it for, for digital purchase online. Um, so now for the first time, you can actually see this project. I have the Blu-ray. I have not watched all 26 episodes of it yet. Um, I'm just starting into it. But man, even just a, a handful of episodes in, even like just having hit kind of what seems like the end of the first act, you can see so much of Miyazaki's other work in it. Um, particularly uh, Lapita, the Castle in the Sky, more than anything else, the two main young protagonists really strongly mirror Pazu and Shida in Laputa. But there's just the expressions on people's faces, the the way he communicates confusion and rage and, and joy and surprise, like all of these things, uh, the way he structures the, the story around kind of a societal indifference versus youthful energy. It's just so familiar from Miyazaki's work and seeing this just kind of like proto work for the first time uh, in America is, has been really exciting to me. It's set in some kind of vaguely defined far future after a gigantic war, a uh, high tech war of humanity wiped out most people. And the, the main character, Conan, is growing up with his grandfather on an island and they think they're the last people on Earth. And then they find out that they aren't and then things get complicated. So that's kind of the setup of it. Uh, but more than anything, I, I don't know, once I watch the whole thing, I may come back for a, a next uh, next picture show recommendation and, and talk about how it plays out. But I would think that just fans of Studio Ghibli in general would want to know that they have the opportunity to pick this up for the first time ever. Future Boy Conan. There's a couple of sketches of that in the Academy Museum's exhibit of Miyazaki's work, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's yeah, that's amazing. And and not surprising. Like he worked on scripts, he worked on storyboards. Um, he definitely directed the pilot. Uh, he and Takahata both had directorial work on this. So, you know, it was a it was where they met. It was a huge part of the Studio Ghibli story. But uh, Genevieve, how about you? 
All right. Well, now for something completely different. I want to uh, recommend a, a documentary that premiered at TIFF, but that is not where I saw it. I recently watched a screener of it because it is premiering on HBO Max a, on December 2nd. So uh, right around the time you are listening to this, probably. It is part of the Music Box series of music documentaries, the first of which was the Woodstock 99 uh, documentary from earlier this year. Um, there's also an Alanis Morissette one that uh, just came out called Jagged, which is fine if you have a connection to Alanis Morissette. I do, but I'm not going to bring that here. There's one on DMX that's coming out in a few days. But I want to talk about the fourth film in the series, which is called Listening to Kenny G, um, <laughs> which is a perfectly anodyne <laughs> title for a perfectly anodyne musical artist. The artist part is actually like the most interest, like kind of the enlivening question of this documentary, which um, is directed by Penny Lane. And it's, it's very lively. It's funny. Um, but it's also got some really interesting insight about music criticism and just kind of criticism more more generally that um you know as it engages with you know the fact that nobody really likes Kenny G but he's like the biggest selling instrumental artist in the world so obviously some people do like Kenny G but critics don't really seem to it's really hard to find someone who can talk seriously about Kenny G and so like after the movie kind of like gets that out of its system. It does kind of attempt to talk a little seriously about Kenny G. But what it ends up with is like this really fascinating portrait of a musician who doesn't really seem to have a lot of passion for music, at least not as an art form. He almost approaches it more as a, a science or, or a, um, a, I guess a craft is probably um, more, more accurate. Um, like his whole, there, there's a lot of interviews with Kenny G, who is a extremely compelling weirdo. He, I, I think like, it's really hard to gauge whether he is likable or unlikable in this movie, which again, kind of feels appropriate for his music. <laughs> but you do, you do kind of come away from it being like, Kenny G, huh? That guy's something. But his whole <laughs> thing is like practice, practice, practice. Like he loves practicing the saxophone. He doesn't necessarily love and he loves like tinkering in the studio and like making every note sound exactly the way he wants it. It's a very sort of like mathematical puzzle based approach to music. But people have these associations with Kenny G, at least his fans do, of, of like being romantic, you know, and um, like having some emotional component to them. So like the disconnect there creates a really fascinating conversation throughout the film that is, again, often quite funny, but I think there is actually a lot of insight there. Um, it's also like there, there's a portion of the film that kind of digs into the question of is Kenny G making jazz music and sort of the invention of the term. And no, like it talks to a bunch of jazz critics and they're all two of one like, no, this is not jazz. And they created this term smooth jazz, <laughs> like just to kind of separate it, separate what Kenny G, who is the foremost, the first and foremost smooth jazz artist to like differentiate it from what he was doing. But like he did come up playing in jazz combos, you know, like that's his background. So his relationship to the jazz form, which has like this long history 
that he is like has no interest in being a part of or like being in conversation with again really fascinating and kind of contributes to the like is he a good guy is he a bad guy is he like well, how should i feel about kenny g it's like it's a 90 minute documentary it's it flies by it's really entertaining i came away from it still not really knowing if i like kenny g but i'm a lot more interested in him than i was before seeing this movie um which i it was a it's a it's a fun movie watching experience so it comes out on hbo max on December 2nd, and it is called Listening to Kenny G. Your comments about Kenny G, nobody's saying they like Kenny G, and he's the top-selling artist, made me think of what Pauline Kiel said about Nixon in 1972 when he won. She said, I don't know how he won because I only know one person voted for him. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Although, I, just a real quick sidebar, I will say my, my husband watched this with me and was just like in agony the whole time, like every time the saxophone came on. So in the days, <laughs> so, in the days since we've watched, I have enjoyed uh, telling our uh, smart speakers to start playing Kenny G just to mess oh. with him a little. So it gave me a new prank. You're going to have to watch something you're not going to want to watch because your husband's going to get revenge. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. Maybe I'll wear him down. Maybe he's going to become a Kenny G super fan after this. If you were if you were to have told me before you started this uh, riff that you were going to make me want to watch something about Kenny G, I would not have believed you. <laughs> I wouldn't have believed you either. Yeah, it got it got uh it got pretty good reviews out of TIFF. A friend of the podcast, Allison Wilmore, I know, is also a big fan of hmm. of it. Um, and uh, yeah, shares my uh, Kenny G is a compelling weirdo uh, stance. So if uh, if that sounds, you know, I, I mean, the documentaries centered on compelling weirdos are like a form I really enjoy. And if it's a form you enjoy too, perhaps you'll like this if you can stand the saxophone. So, <laughs> Keith, what about you? Uh, I want to briefly just touch on a film that I like a lot that that we surprisingly did not talk about in, in talking about Invitational Life, which is Far From Heaven. Uh, Todd Haynes' 2002 film that's very much an homage to to Douglas Sirk's uh, work, uh, especially All the Heaven Allows, um, but with some of the some of the themes of Invitation of Life uh, and Julian uh, Moore started. Well, you get the whole. I don't want to get in the whole plot, but it, but it's 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 good. Go check check that one out. Uh, I felt weird not to mention it. Uh, but I just in terms of the stuff you can go see now, I really enjoyed Mike Mills' new movie, Come On, Come On, uh, in which Joaquin Phoenix plays a a a, a NPR esque uh, journalist uh, who is uh, uh, unexpectedly. Uh, placed in charge of his nephew, uh, 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 played by uh, named Jesse, played by Woody Norman, um, and uh, it doesn't know what to do with it. And like that kind of sounds like a sort of you kind of know what sort of movie that's going to be, and it really isn't. It really tries not to be that kind of movie. It's not cloying or cutesy, and it doesn't like you know. There's not like manufactured crises or anything like that. I, it's it's um, low intensity, and but by the end, I found it really quite quite moving. And uh, one connection with passing is that's really striking uh, black and white cinematography, which is a trend uh, this fall, I guess, between this and and uh, Macbeth and and uh, Belfast and what am I forgetting? There's something else, right? The At least one more. Dispatches some black and white in it. Right, French was plenty of black and white there. So, yeah, we're black and white. It's it's coming back around again, and I, I I for one welcome it. I do too. And and this uh, come on, come on, has something in common with Imitation of Life in that the kid in it is obnoxious and hard. <laughs> I like that kid. Oh, I couldn't stand him. I was like, when he disappeared, I was like, please. 
Let him be gone. <laughs> uh, he just felt like a real kid to me, though. It's the thing. You know, you know, which no which kid is that insufferable. I have four <laughs> siblings, younger siblings, and 24 nieces and nephews. And let me oh, tell wow. you, none of them, and it's their pains in the ass, but none of them was as bad as that kid. That kid was Dude. not, he was hyper unrealistic. Did, did, did any of them pretend to be orphans who show up at night and ask for a bed and to talk about your dead child? <laughs> I do love that detail. I, I, so so I, that's why I didn't yell at y'all when y'all were jumping all over poor Sarah Jane and <laughs> I wonder what's what's more annoying the uh, the kid in Come On Come On or the saxophone in listening to Kenny G. In either in either case, you're just going to have to get a human version of the saxophone. Yeah. Well, that's what happens. Uh, Future Book Conan features a uh, obnoxious child playing the saxophone at great length. No, I'm, I'm, it's not true. I, no. I, I have I have did not manage to draw everything together into one perfect uh, uh, uh. here as much as I wish I might have. <laughs> And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes will premiere on December 7th and 14th. Genevieve, what do we have on tap? In her new film, The Power of the Dog, director Jane Campion includes a scene where Benedict Cumberbatch, who stars as a brusque rancher in 1920s Montana, decides to torment his brother's new wife, played by Kirsten Dunst, as she struggles to master Strauss's Radetzky March on piano. As she barely ekes out the notes, Cumberbatch picks up his banjo and effortlessly works through the piece, cruelly mocking her inferiority. Their twisted duet is an homage to Deliverance, John Borman's 1972 thriller about four city slickers who run into trouble with the locals on a canoe trip in the North Georgia wilderness. At first glance, Campion and Borman's films wouldn't seem to have much in common, one a period western, the other a contemporary survival thriller. But on our next set of episodes, we'll look at the connections between these two very different films about the destructive power of masculinity and the wide-ranging toll it exacts on their characters. Deliverance is currently streaming on HBO Max, and The Power of the Dog is exclusively on Netflix. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Imitation of Life, Passing, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing us out this week, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? I am the senior TV editor at Vulture.com. And you can find my avatar on Twitter, just sitting there, not tweeting anything, at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha, how about you? I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, and you can find my Twitter avatar also sitting on Twitter, but uh, blithering up a storm uh, some days. And, uh, you know, being being quiet on other days, it, it depends on how things go. Odie, Bo, we, we want to know both where we can find you on social media and where we can find your work, but you made a lot of references during this show to your imitation of life write-up, and I especially want to make sure that we hit uh, where we where people can find that. Well. I'm normally at RogerEbert.com, but I also run a blog called Big Media Vandalism, uh, BigMediaVandal.blogspot.com, soon to be missing from Blogspot and put someplace else. That's what my imitation of life piece is. It's actually 13 years old. I wrote it in 2008. Uh, you can find me. I'll, I'll also tweet it. You can find me at on Twitter at Odinator, O-D-I-E-N-A-T-O-R. And Keith, what about you? 
Uh, I'm a freelance writer. My work is a bunch of places, primarily these days, places like GQ and The Ringer and and, and Vulture. Uh, and you can also find uh, my writing very regularly at uh, The Reveal, which is uh, thereveal.substack.com, which is a newsletter that absent co-host Scott Tobias and I uh, turn out uh, several times a week. And I'm on Twitter at KFIPS3000. And you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts. Please tune in next time.